Live from WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. The Trump campaign files lawsuits in response to Joe Biden's victory. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. This is a case where they're trying to steal an election. And President Shapiro reveals a surprise budget surplus for the 2020 fiscal year. For that to happen, it's clear that the price was black and brown, poor black and brown workers' lives. And Northwestern students help provide election results to outlets worldwide. One of the main reasons I took the job was just because I thought it was just such a cool idea that I could be a part of the AP's coverage, just because they are kind of the definitive source for calling the election and covering it. Those stories tonight. Last week, the Trump campaign filed suit in several states, claiming voter fraud and violations of state election laws. Reporter Angelina Campanile speaks with three Northwestern professors who break down Trump's lawsuits and explain why it's unlikely court decisions will affect the outcome of the 2020 election. The moment the entire country has been waiting for after a very close race. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. We're Americans flooded the streets Saturday across the nation. They celebrated former Vice President Joe Biden's victory as the 46th president of the United States. A record 75 million Americans voted for Biden. 70 million voted for President Donald Trump. A nation divided. The 2020 presidential election came in the midst of the novel coronavirus pandemic. Voters cast more mail-in ballots than ever before. Over the past few months, President Trump has repeatedly sowed doubt over the election process. He's focused much of his energy on Pennsylvania, who extended the deadline for ballots to be accepted three days after Election Day. Pennsylvania officials were also not allowed to start counting mail-in ballots until Election Day, leading Trump to attack the delayed tabulation process. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. This is a case where they're trying to steal an election. They're trying to rig an election. As of last week, the president filed suit in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona, all states in which Biden beat Trump by narrow margins. Daniel Rodriguez is the Harold Washington Professor of Law at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. I spoke with the former Pritzker dean to better understand the legal basis of Trump's lawsuits. What does the Constitution say about or, or doesn't say about election laws in the United States? The Constitution gives the state, and that means, of course, the state governments, the uh, exclusive uh, power to set out what they call the time, place, and manner of elections. And so what that means is come election time, whether we're talking about any elections, including the presidential elections, the basic uh, rules of the game, how to to run elections, uh, balloting, uh, all of those issues are dealt with at the state level. Now, Having said that, uh, their uh, states are not free to do any, everything that anything they want. There are uh, constitutional cases, many cases over the years, that define the scope of what we call the right to vote, that establish sort of the rule, the requirements that states must follow to make sure that we, the people, all of us, have uh, our ability, the ability to cast our vote in elections, including presidential elections. 
the Pennsylvania Secretary of State extended the deadline for receiving ballots from Election Day to three days later. President Trump filed suit claiming this violated Pennsylvania election law. The state court upheld the decision, so Trump appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided a very technical issue, but of course a momentous issue, and that is not to permit an emergency appeal. In other words, not to consider the case when the administration wanted them to consider it, which was mm -hmm. right away. However, and three justices said this explicitly, yeah. uh, it, however, we reserve the prerogative and may even consider challenges after the election without committing themselves one way or the other to do that. Supreme Court Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas issued a statement directing Pennsylvania to segregate ballots that arrived after Election Day. In the event the court takes the case in the future, these ballots can simply be exempt from the total count and thrown away. It certainly becomes even more momentous that the Supreme Court, any justices of the Supreme Court, uh, hold out the prospect that they will hear a, uh, a challenge to uh, Pennsylvania uh, sometime after the election. And now, of course, we know, where are we, November 5th, that, uh, that Pennsylvania might in fact matter to the outcome. It did matter, as Pennsylvania won Biden the presidency just two days later. Trump led Biden in the state until the end of the week. As more ballots were being counted, Biden surpassed Trump and began to pull away. I want to talk about two things that Alito said in this opinion. Um, one, he brings up this question of state law. So yes. the question is, does the state legislature have the last word on setting the state election procedures or does the state court? And he says it's the state legislature. What does the Constitution say? So let's let's unpack it a little bit. You're, you're absolutely right. This is sort of the heart of the disagreement is the relationship between what the state legislature says must happen and what the state courts say must happen. The United States Constitution, uh, with respect to its specific language, speaks of state legislatures. It doesn't say anything about state courts. It doesn't say anything about the state executive branch. It says state legislatures. And the way that some justices are reading that is to say they meant exactly what they said. And when they said state legislatures, it meant that state legislatures would make that judgment without any risk of contravention by any other institutions within state government, like state courts. That view uh, that state legislatures means only the state legislature, no role of the court, doesn't deal with the fact that you have 50 states that all have their own constitutions and constitutional arrangements. It's a sort of a strange result to basically say, oh, the US Constitution, the United States Constitution, defines exactly how the business of state government within the structure of state government. Uh, they must have, is the argument, they must have uh, contemplated that by state legislatures, they mean basically the state political process, which certainly will include state legislatures, but those state legislative judgments may be subject to decisions of the state courts, as here, as it was. And that was a judgment that was not just some random state court in, in Pennsylvania, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The nub of the disagreement with respect to this is uh, whether state legislatures means exactly what it says, mm -hmm. or does it does it uh, is uh, should it be decided in a somewhat more contextual way? I think that this is this is almost schizophrenia about it, because on the one hand, yes, it's 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 state by state, but on the other hand, this is a national election. You know, the enfranchisement is uh, enfranchisement at the national level. The state doesn't get to decide. You know, that 16-year-olds can vote in this election in this state, and 24-year-olds can't. Felons can decide to vote in this state, uh, they can in that. So you have to have some national criteria, national standards. And, you know, it's so problematic that there's just these differences. 
Michael Kang teaches election law at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. He specializes in voting rights, election administration, and campaign finance. The president had a press conference yesterday from the White House the, on November 5th. And he said, if you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. What are the illegal votes that he's referring to? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so he's been talking about illegal votes and suspicions with mail voting. Those are, those are just uh, really vague and nonspecific uh, objections that he has and certainly don't come close to meeting any sort of legal definition of, of voter fraud or illegality. And so, um, I mean, I think a lot of this is political theater more than any sort of legal claim. If we look for voter fraud associated with mail voting, there, there really isn't uh, much evidence of it. Uh, and, and more importantly, there's nothing, uh, no evidence of systematic voter fraud, which is really what he's complaining about, that there's kind of widespread voter fraud at the level at which you know, it would change the outcomes of elections. One Supreme Court decision that did change the outcome of the election was Bush v. Gore in 2000. The court reversed a Florida Supreme Court request for a selective manual recount of the state's presidential election ballots. The 5-4 decision effectively awarded Florida's 25 electoral college votes, and thus the election itself, to Republican candidate George W. Bush. There was something rather different, though, about the court's per curiam opinion. It says, quote, our consideration is limited to the present circumstances where the problem of equal protection in election processes generally presents many complexities. Yeah. Our consideration is limited to the present circumstances, which to me just goes against the whole Supreme Court, you know, setting yeah. precedents like, okay, this is for this case. Yet here we have President Trump citing this case in his lawsuits today against the states. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and, it, and, th and that aspect of Bush versus Gore is much criticized as a one way ticket and uh, applied only for that case. And that, that's a bad sign, usually in law, because it suggests that you don't have confidence in the basic principle uh, and you're deciding this on some weird um, case specific um, basis rather than as a larger principle of law that you think uh, makes sense in lots of cases if, it, if it's a good idea. Um, so I think that all of that is exactly right, but it is, it's consistent with this understanding of Bush versus Gore as this weird one-off case where the Supreme Court was acting as much politically as it was legally. Um, it, Bush versus Gore has come back a little bit uh, here, and I think it looms large in Donald Trump's imagination. I think he had an idea uh, that the Supreme Court, if he could put three justices on there that owe him um, their jobs, that they're supposed to like save the save him from an election loss, and I I don't know that it's that much more complicated for him uh, than that. Um, but it's not the case that the Supreme Court just uh, is some sort of cleanup crew for the president that appoints the justices. Bush versus Gore, if nothing else, is a Supreme Court decision. It relates mm -hmm. to elections. It relates to presidential elections. In that case, the Republican won, so it has the appearance to people that Trump has to win, just like Bush won. That's why you cite Bush versus Gore. It's rhetorical. Northwestern professor Jack Doppelt specializes in media law and ethics, immigrant affairs, and voting rights. One of the reasons why some people, me included, think that Bush versus Gore was a literal judicial coup rather than a reasoned decision was the way in which they go about it, went about it, 
and took the case at all from what is the norm, which is the state decided by state law what the resolution was and then prevented the state's decision from going into effect. And in the decision, they effectively said, we're basing this on equal protection, but it's an equal protection that applies very peculiarly to the specific county races and the way they were counted this time in Florida. Both Doppelt and Kang said they do not think the president will be victorious in his lawsuits, especially in Pennsylvania. And even if he was, the court's decision would not affect the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. The way that you think of the right to vote in American law is really largely driven through equal protection, which means that um, the state has the option to give, you, give its citizens a right to vote. Uh, it doesn't have to do that. It, it doesn't have to hold a presidential election. The Pennsylvania legislature can just appoint presidential electors without an election if they wanted. Um, but once the state decides to have an election and allow people to vote on things, it has to uh, administer the right to vote in, uh, in an equal way and treat everyone the same, uh, subject to equal protection. And so um, most of our voting rights law has to do with this sort of question about equal treatment of voters across categories rather than whether there's a right to vote in the first place. For WNUR News, I'm Angelina Campanile. Contradicting his predictions last spring, Northwestern President Morton Shapiro announced in an interview with Crane's Chicago Business that the university had turned a surprise budget surplus in the 2020 fiscal year. Reporter Alex Harrison investigates. It's a simple matter of arithmetic. On May 11th, Northwestern President Morton Shapiro announced that the university was anticipating a $90 million deficit for the 2020 fiscal year. Six months later, he told Crane Chicago Business that the deficit had been erased and turned into a surplus. The 2020 fiscal year ended August 31st, less than four months after Shapiro's May announcement, leaving Northwestern community members a doozy of a math problem to solve. How, in the middle of an ongoing pandemic and recession, did Northwestern manage to shore up $90 million in less than four months? For context, Northwestern is certainly no stranger to budget deficits. Only two years ago, in the 2018 fiscal year, the university had posted a $94 million shortfall, which it covered by pulling an additional $100 million out of the endowment. This move had long-lasting effects on university finances and caused the endowment to drop for the first time in 10 years. During fiscal year 2019, it fell from $11.1 billion to $10.8 billion, a decrease of about $280 million. But the 2020 deficit was quite different from those of the past, as it was caused by the shutdown and economic recession that began in March with the COVID-19 pandemic. While the stock market has mostly recovered, the fact remains that Northwestern lost a huge amount of regular revenue between March and the end of August, including housing, meal plans, and athletic sales. And despite Northwestern's plans to bring all students back winter quarter, the ongoing second wave makes it likely that these revenues won't return to normal anytime soon. Yet somehow, as peer institutions post deficits of tens of millions or even $100 million, Northwestern ended up in the black. Where did the money come from? The answer given by President Shapiro was characteristically vague. In the Crane's interview, he was unable to provide a figure for the surplus and cited higher-than-expected revenues from programs like Kellogg, the School of Professional Studies, and Big Ten Sports as the source of the extra funding. 
Yet these revenues are only one part of a massive shift in the university's finances in response to COVID-19 and hide the funding cuts and downsizing enforced by the administration against staff and faculty. One of the largest cuts to Northwestern's budget has come from the layoff of over 500 staff members, including approximately 330 Compass Dining Hall workers between July and September. And like the way that Morty was talking about the surplus was frankly horrifying because he basically was like, yeah, we couldn't have done this without laying off hundreds of workers, including service workers, which they've abandoned since March, and they're literally struggling to survive. Abby Zhu, a member of Students Organizing for Labor Rights, says that she and others in the student group were appalled by the announcement of a budget surplus. She says they've seen firsthand the effects of the mass layoffs that enabled the surplus on those compass workers, and that they are nothing to be proud of. For that to happen, it's clear that the price was black and brown, poor black and brown workers' lives. Um, and for him to say that it's worth it or even a source of pride means that his pride is rooted in those deaths and that suffering um, and that inability to pay for basic necessities. Despite the current plan to reopen campus to all students in winter quarter, it is unclear if Northwestern will rehire the laid off dining hall workers. While President Shapiro said in his May 11th announcement that the university, quote, will attempt an earlier recall when we are able to begin a phased reopening of campus, his Crane's interview on November 5th strikes a different tone. In that, he said, quote, Now that we came out of this much faster than we thought, we're trying to allocate things, as I said before, that make us more efficient. We're not just going to replicate everything we did. We're going to allocate our funds to the greatest return. Zhu says that this statement makes clear what Shapiro, and by extension Northwestern, are prioritizing. I mean, I think it's really scary because it basically sounds like we're not going to rehire people if we don't have to, which makes it sounds like sound like they won't prioritize rehiring the workers that they fired way back in March. And that means that those workers are going to continue not having a source of income, even though we know Northwestern has so much money to spare before and now even more so because of the surplus. Beyond mass layoffs, a number of other austerity measures have been taken in response to the pandemic, including a staff hiring freeze, a faculty salary freeze, pausing of facilities projects, administrator pay cuts, and a suspension of contributions to faculty retirement funds. But retirement contributions are now slated to restart January 1st, which has led some at Northwestern to question whether those cuts were actually necessary. The reinstatement was announced to faculty via email on October 21st, this was during a time when numerous departments were publicly declaring support for the African-American Studies Department's rebuking of President Shapiro after he strongly condemned the NU Community Not Cops protest movement. Claudia Garcia Rojas, a graduate student in the AFAM department, said this of the announcement on Twitter, quote, Northwestern U President Shapiro trying to get on the good side of NU faculty and staff as a way to derail solidarity with AFAM department and student activists literally trying to buy their silence and loyalty back with what was already theirs. He's like those parents who will take candy away from a child and only give it back if the child does what they say. This is control and manipulation, not to be confused with actual leadership, a skill he clearly lacks. But putting aside how the surplus was achieved, it was surprising to many that a surplus would be desirable right now at all, 
given the adverse effects the pandemic and recession have had on vulnerable Northwestern community members. In the Crane's interview, Shapiro spoke highly of the surplus, saying, quote, We will be producing our fiscal 2020 final numbers soon, and in contrast to a number of our peer institutions who did come in $100 million or so in the red, we're actually in the black. It's a pretty resilient place. The pride in the surplus was not received well by many. On Twitter, chemical engineering grad student Carolyn Ramirez said, quote, At Northwestern U laid off hundreds of service workers during the pandemic, refused to go remote this fall, refused to raise grad student stipends, and hasn't provided adequate financial support to undergrads because they were afraid to lose money. Profits over people, the NU motto. Andrew Hull, an officer for Northwestern graduate workers, had this to say, quote, This multi-billion dollar university continues to balance its books on the backs of its workers, even in the midst of a pandemic. This, quote, surprise surplus is not surprising at all, and it should fill President Shapiro and the university trustees with shame. Zhu says she found the pride despicable, but also said that the narrow release of this information to Crane Chicago business shows Shapiro's unwillingness to make it too publicly known. Like, this was only released in, like, this very specific, like, news outlet, and, like, he didn't send an email to the entire community, so, like, what are you trying to hide? And, like, you're only willing to say those things to, like, a very specific, like, business magazine. Um, I think it goes to show that he doesn't want people to know where his values lie, because clearly he values profits over literal people's lives. I emailed President Shapiro and asked for an interview on the surplus, but he declined, saying, quote, nothing to add to what I already said. When I asked for someone else to speak with on the matter, he forwarded me to Jerry Ward, the VP of Global Marketing and Communications, to open a media inquiry. Ward said that finalized numbers on the surplus wouldn't be available until the annual financial report is released in mid-December. And so, this is where the public information on the budget ends. It is likely that the only new information that will be released between now and the financial report is an overview of the NUPD budget. And that is only if the administration sticks to the November 16th deadline set by President Shapiro. But for Zhu and the members of Solar, who have been raising money to help keep laid-off workers afloat since the pandemic began, the need for aid from the university and its community continues to be urgent. If you could donate to solar through Venmo or PayPal, that would be amazing. Our Venmo is S-O-L-R underscore N-U, and our PayPal is paypal.me slash solar N-U as one word. From Evanston, this is Alex Harrison, WNUR News. Some Northwestern students got the chance to witness AP's election calling process, which many major news outlets use in order to deliver election results to the public. Reporter Olivia Lloyd has the story. The Associated Press is often the authority when it comes to calling elections. AP has a team of race callers who have years of political expertise in the states where they declare election winners. Calling elections also involves an even larger team of people processing information on election night itself. Several Northwestern students got the chance to go behind the scenes and see this process for themselves. At times, it was not what they expected. One of the main reasons I took the job was just because I thought it was just such a cool idea that I could be a part of the AP's coverage just because they are kind of the definitive source for calling the election and covering it. That's David Deloso, a junior studying journalism with a design certificate. His team worked on gathering results of the presidential election from various counties across the U.S. 
and just like it was such a, a huge effort you know they have like hundreds if not thousands of people not on my team specifically but just covering and tracking the election so it felt it, felt, it made me feel like i was part of something bigger even if i was just a small part of it and i think being on, on the zoom call with um the other people on my team was really nice even though i didn't really know them at all you know just to be like kind of surrounded by people who were on the front lines of covering the election i thought that was really cool and it was also just super cool to um as a journalism student it was cool to get a more concrete idea of how these elections are reported and how they get the numbers and how this whole thing comes together just because it is such a huge operation Deloso's work for AP is called web scraping, which is the process of extracting data from websites. In this case, Deloso was gathering data from county websites posting their ballot numbers on election night. He imported the county's website information into AP News, then parsed the data in order to find the numbers for the presidential election. We were taking data from county results pages and then uh, pulling that into the AP's online system. And basically, it just runs some code that goes through the, um, the website and pulls out every possible value on that website. It can also do PDFs and like other types of files, but um, it goes through every possible value on the website and we just have to tell it which values correspond to vote counts for candidates. Deloso said he was excited to work for AP, though his election night work involved a lot of waiting. But it ended up being a whole lot of like waiting for counties to post their results because I couldn't really do my job until each county posted at least like an an unofficial page for their results. And sometimes that would literally just be like zeros in all of the vote counts, but like we needed something to go off. So I just kind of waited uh, for a long time. It was a lot of waiting and a lot of like, just kind of being stressed about the election itself, just on a personal level, um, kind of like trying to keep up with coverage, but also trying to focus on my like job that I was currently doing. Medill freshman Madeline Southwell originally wanted to be a poll worker, but that didn't work out. So when her Medill professor mentioned that AP was looking for people to help out on election night, she jumped at the opportunity. Like Delosa said, her job also involved a lot of waiting. Overall, it was less busy than I had expected, but it was definitely exciting at moments because I think as AP specifically was like calling various races it's like cool because it's like oh in a way like I'm sort of part of that. Southwell had a similar role as Deloso with slightly less technical involvement. Her supervisor sent her emails from election officials in Vermont and she entered that information into AP's database. Southwell was responsible for state level races across Vermont in addition to the presidential election which was actually called for Vermont before Southwell even got her first look at the numbers. I would get like new emails every like 20, 25 minutes and it would take me, as I got better at it, it would take me about 10 minutes to fill out one county's results. From Southwell's end, AP's process was a little disorganized. It was to the point where I didn't know that I was going to do it until the weekend before the election. And then actually, finally, it started like actually picking up and I had signed up for a training session on Monday, the day before the election. And 30 minutes before it started, they emailed and they're like, I'm sorry, like we're too overwhelmed. We can't create any new accounts. We can't like accommodate you. So you can't work for us essentially. And then they emailed again at midnight and we're like, actually we can't. 
let us know if you can still help. So I had to like scramble. I had like classes until one. So I couldn't make any of the sessions the next day. So it was stressful the day of because I really didn't know that I was doing it until midnight. Once the numbers started rolling in, Southwell at least got to look at some interesting results. It was particularly interesting to see like the amount of people voting for Kanye. There was consistently like at least a vote in every county I received for him. And one of them in like a county with like 3,000 voters. I had 13 votes for him, which was really shocking, honestly. For a process that's so critical in communicating results to the public, both on a presidential and state level, it's not always as flawless or harrowing as it may seem. For WNUR News, I'm Olivia Lloyd. Last for today, the warm weather is coming to an end with a powerful cold front. Here's Linus Holler with the weather report. Let's take a look at this week's weather charts. So far, fall has been unusually warm and especially November has felt more like May. Remember that last year around this time we had snow on the ground. But soon this warmth will be over and Chicago's dreaded winter will be rolling in. Tomorrow, Tuesday, will be the last day of this warm spell. For the first half of the day, the sky will be mostly cloudy with few sunny patches, but it will stay dry. Temperatures will start off at a mild 64 Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius. They will rise as the sun heats up the air, reaching a high of about 71 Fahrenheit, 22 Celsius by the early afternoon. The wind will be picking up over the course of the morning, foreshadowing a change in the weather, which will happen in the afternoon when a powerful cold front will move in from the west, bringing with it heavy rain and gale force gusts. Stay alert and keep an eye on the National Weather Service's alerts. Keep away from the lakefront, as there may be dangerous waves. As the name suggests, the cold front will bring cooler air to the Chicago metro area, starting off Wednesday with much cooler temperatures of just about freezing. 36 Fahrenheit, 2 degrees Celsius it was we're currently predicting for the morning. The wind will have calmed down a bit overnight, but will remain breezy at times. For Wednesday, the clouds will have moved off to the east and we're expecting a lot of sunshine. Temps won't reach pre-cold front levels anymore, but be more fitting to the season, reaching a high of 49 Fahrenheit, 9 degrees Celsius. Thursday too will be sunny, albeit with a few occasional fair weather clouds in the sky. Temperatures will drop down to just above freezing in the morning, before warming to 35 Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Celsius during the day. The wind will be calm. And Friday too is expected to be mostly sunny, although a bit chillier than the other days of the week, with temperatures ranging from 35 Fahrenheit, 2 degrees Celsius, to 47 Fahrenheit, 8 degrees Celsius, over the course of the day. The trend for the weekend looks rainy, at similar temperatures to much of the week. Sunday might also bring some sunny patches. Breezy conditions are expected, especially at the lakefront. But this is still far out and a lot can change in the forecast by then, so let's not lose hope quite yet. For WNUR News, I'm Linus Huller with The Weather. That's all for the WNUR News at 6pm. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. On behalf of our producer and reporter, Angelina Campanile, reporters Alex Harrison, Olivia Lloyd, and all of us here at WNUR, I'm Helen Bradshaw. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. Thanks for listening. Your next news break will be Friday, November 13th. Until then, have a wonderful week. Now, back to scheduled programming.